Good morning, friends. It's a pleasure here to be with you and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you to what is one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible. But before we do that, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us again briefly, and then we will look at God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would astonish us with your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness and forgiveness. Teach us about the abundance of the riches of your forgiveness of our sins through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapters 44 and 45. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passages on pages 38 and 39. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I'll be reading portions of it uh, this morning. And I also want to encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout the sermon as we'll look back at the text often in our time together. Uh, What we'll witness transpire in our passage this morning is nothing short of astonishing. It is riveting, emotionally gripping, and touches some of the deepest and rawest nerves in human experience. Uh, One commentator said about these two chapters that, No more moving example of true contrition, repentance, and forgiveness is to be found in all of Scripture, unless it be the parable of the prodigal son. I agree entirely. I'd simply point out that the parable of the prodigal son is a parable. This is real history. What we will read here really, actually happened. And if you let yourself step into the passage and feel yourself present in it along with Joseph, Judah, and his brothers, the drama of it at times is almost too much to handle. Not only that, but it is vital for us to grasp what this passage has to teach us about sin, about guilt we carry around because of our sins, about repentance, about forgiveness, and about God's sovereignly working through the foibles, failures, and sins of mankind to make redemption possible. Quite simply, this passage is as illustrative as any in the Old Testament, as any in Scripture, of how God responds to those who acknowledge their sins and turn in faith to his son, Jesus. I need to fully grasp the drama and the tension and emotion. We do have to briefly, briefly remind ourselves of all that has happened between Joseph and his brothers. We have to remind ourselves of how much Joseph's brothers, Judah included, hated him because he was their father's favorite son. Their hatred for him was so intense that they plotted to murder him. But at the last minute, Judah thinks it would be better to at least profit off of their hatred of Joseph, so they 
sell him into slavery in Egypt. But 22 years have passed between that act and what we find transpired today. 22 years have passed, and over those 22 years, Joseph has suffered tremendously because of what they did to him. Yet he's also prospered through it all because God was with him. Because of God's blessing, Joseph rises from the position of slave in Egypt to become the second most powerful ruler in Egypt. He personally oversaw the storing up of grain to prepare Egypt for the great famine that was coming on the world. And when that famine came, Joseph's brothers traveled from the land of Canaan south into Egypt to buy grain where, unbeknownst to them, they encounter Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but keeps his identity hidden. He begins treating them harshly, accusing them of being spies, and then throws them in prison. But what becomes clear of his actions towards his brothers is that he is testing them testing them to see what kind of men they have become over these last 22 years. Are they the same murderous brothers as before? Or have they changed? The glimpses that we get into their character reveal men who appear to be deeply afflicted with guilt over the crime they committed against their brother 20 years earlier. But Joseph still isn't sure. And so he tests them again. That's where our passage picks up today. Most of the time, I will read the entire passage, even if it's two chapters along. But today, I'm only going to read certain sections of these two chapters. And the reason for that is there is so much here that I want us to consider and so much good application for us that if I read all two chapters, we won't be able to spend as much time considering these different applications for us as I'd like to. And second, the second reason is, the real heartbeat of this passage happens in Judah's speech at the end of chapter four and Joseph's response at the beginning of chapter 45. So that's where we're gonna focus in terms of our reading this morning. But I do still wanna give you what I think the main point of this, these two chapters is up front. So if you're taking notes, kids, I don't know if you guys have those kids' sheets that we set out front. If you don't have one, go grab one. It's a great way for you to follow along and to even take notes about what the main point of the passage is. If you're taking notes, the main point of Genesis 44 and 45 is that those who repent of their sins will be forgiven by God's sovereignly appointed Savior. Those who repent of their sins will be forgiven by God's sovereignly appointed Savior. We're going to walk through the passage, and I'll show you why I think that's the main point. And then we're going to consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. And then we're going to consider what this passage means for us today. So let's go ahead and turn to the text. I want you to go ahead and look with me at verses one to four. I'll read those, voice, those verses and that'll launch us into the rest of the chapter. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, 
fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this he, that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So what's going on here is that Joseph is setting his brothers up for one final test of their character. You think back to what's happened already. In the first test, he imprisoned one of their brothers, Simeon. He said that the only way Simeon would be released from prison is if they went back to Canaan, if they went back and retrieved their youngest brother, Benjamin, and then returned with him to Egypt to prove that they actually had a younger brother named Benjamin. The brothers passed that test, and they returned with Benjamin. Then Joseph tested them again by inviting them to a feast at his house. Keep in mind, they still do not recognize Joseph. And at the feast, he gives Benjamin, who in the place of Joseph has become their father's favorite son, he gives Benjamin five times as much as the other brothers, and he does this to see if they're going to respond to Benjamin and these displays of favoritism toward Benjamin with the same envy and hatred that they responded to him with 22 years earlier. But they don't. They pass the test. They eat and drink and are merry with Joseph. And this is the very next day where our passage picks up. Now Joseph is setting them up one final time, and this final test will put them in exactly the same situation they were in when they chose to sell Joseph into slavery. He wants to frame Benjamin, the favorite son, so that he can threaten to make him, the favorite son, a slave in Egypt, to see if his brothers will abandon Benjamin and return to Canaan in peace, just as they did with him when they sold him into slavery. And the test works perfectly. The brothers leave after verse four, probably quite pleased with how their trip to Egypt went. Not only did they get Simeon out of prison, they got to have a feast with one of the rulers of Egypt. On top of that, nothing happened to Benjamin. Remember, Jacob was like, if anything happens to Benjamin, I will die. You will be the end of me. So they're returning home with Simeon, feasting with the second most powerful man in the world. They don't know why. And they're returning home with Benjamin. This has gone well. But then they see sirens in the rearview mirror, right? The steward chases them down. If they would have looked back there on donkeys, I'm guessing that the steward probably would have been in a chariot with a host of chariots around them, chasing them down. They would have seen horses coming, dust piling up in the sky behind them and thinking, oh no, this isn't good, right? The steward overtakes them. He accuses them of stealing a silver cup from Joseph. They plead their innocence, telling him that whoever has the cup 
will pay with his life. None of us have it. Whoever has it will die. They empty their bags one by one from the oldest to the youngest. And lo and behold, the cup that Joseph planted in Benjamin's sack tumbles out of Benjamin's bag. The brothers are distraught. They tear their clothes to display how overcome with grief. The brother that we swore to protect is now going to die by the pledge that we have made. The steward says, no, we're not going to take his life. We're just going to make him a slave in Egypt. They plead their innocence. They continue pleading. They empty their bags. They find the silver, the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And now Jacob is going to lose his second favorite son, Benjamin, because of them. They return to Egypt. They're brought before Joseph. Joseph rebukes them for stealing the cup. I want you to go ahead and look with me at verse 16 at how Judah responds to Joseph. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Basically, there's nothing that we can say to clear ourselves. There's nothing we can do in this situation. Then look at what he says next. God has found out the guilt of your servants. What he means there by using the word found out is not as though God was searching something out. He said, God has exposed the guilt of your servants. But he's not referring to their guilt for taking the silver cup. He's referring to their guilt for what they did to Joseph. What he did to Joseph. It was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery in Egypt. We are guilty. But then he continues. Look at verse 16 again. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and he also in whose the hand cup has been found. He's offering for all of them to become Joseph's slaves. Because we're all guilty, we will, we will all become your slaves. And in that, we get another glimpse into how these brothers have changed. You know, this isn't the, this isn't the first time that they've recognized their guilt. You go back to chapter 42, when they were first imprisoned by Joseph on their first trip to Egypt. What did they say? It is because of what we did to our brother Joseph that this is happening to us. The weight of the guilt of their sin against Joseph has become real to them. They have acknowledged it, understood it, internalized it. Whereas in the past they ruthlessly plotted to murder their own brother, now they're offering to stand in solidarity to suffer alongside one of their brothers even though they hadn't taken the cup. And that change in character is confirmed by what happens next. Look at what Joseph says in verse 17. He says, far be it from me. No, only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. I want you to see how perfectly 
Joseph has set them up to test their character, to see if these are the same murderous brothers who sold, them into, sold him into slavery. Notice what Joseph is doing. Joseph is going to keep Benjamin, his father's favorite son, and the rest can go free. Why is that important? Because he's putting them in essentially the same position they were in 20 years earlier when they chose to sell him, their father's favorite son, into slavery in Egypt. And after selling him into slavery, they left with money in their sacks and went back to their father in peace. Now, they're being told they can leave their father's favorite son, Benjamin, behind as a slave in Egypt, while they can go free with money in their sacks and return to their father in Canaan. If they're the same men, if they're controlled by the same hatred and jealousy of their father's favorite son as before, they won't think twice about leaving Benjamin behind. He has perfectly set them up to see if they've changed. And what he finds is that they have changed. In verses 18 to 31, Judah pleads with Joseph, essentially telling Joseph that if anything happens to Benjamin, their father would die from sorrow. Basically repeats that over and over again. Now I want you to look with me at what he says to Joseph in verses 32 to 34. For your servant, speaking about himself, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah, the brother who callously sold Joseph, their father's favorite son, into slavery in Egypt, is now given the choice to leave Benjamin, his father's favorite son, to become a slave in Egypt. And rather than leave him, he offers to take Benjamin's place, which essentially would have been a death sentence to become a slave in Egypt. Your life is over from that point forward. This is as wonderful a picture of genuine repentance as you'll find in all of Scripture. Judah acknowledges their guilt before God. In truth, God has exposed our guilt. Verse 16. Recognizes that he and his brothers deserve punishment. We deserve to be punished alongside of him cares about the impact that his actions have had and will have on his father, which he repeats over and over again in verses 18 to 34. And faced with the same circumstances that he was once in before, he now chooses to offer himself as a slave in the place of Benjamin, clearly choosing a new path in life, turning from his old path. Judah, as a representative of his brothers, repents. Solomon will later write in Proverbs, whoever conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. And Judah 
and his brothers find mercy from Joseph. Joseph forgives them. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 8 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is overcome with emotion. Having witnessed Judah's clear repentance, any vengeance, anger, or wrath he may have been feeling towards them gives way to love, grace, mercy, reconciliation, and forgiveness. I mean, can you imagine being in that room, being one of the brothers, and hearing him say, I am Joseph? Like, what was that like? How on earth would you respond to that? I mean, you do what they did. They're dismayed. Throughout Scripture, that word refers to terror in the face of judgment. They're terrified that their brother is going to kill them. And what does he say? Draw near. Come near to me. Do not be angry with yourselves. Do not be overcome. Joseph doesn't kill them. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't even appear angry with them. He calls them to draw near, and he forgives them. This entire scene is a scene of forgiveness and reconciliation. Though they hated him and left him for dead, resulting in intense suffering in his life, he responds by forgiving them. And notice why he's able to forgive them, because he understands 
God's sovereign purposes in everything that have happened. Verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me to preserve for you a remnant and keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here but God. The brothers committed evil. They sinned terribly in selling Joseph into slavery. Yet God sovereignly used their sin to send Joseph to Egypt so that through him many people would be saved. And now... Because of their repentance, the brothers receive forgiveness from Joseph, God's sovereignly appointed Savior. Friends, those who repent will be forgiven by God's sovereignly appointed Savior. Then in the rest of the chapter, Joseph invites his repentant brothers to come and live in his kingdom where he would provide for them and where they would be preserved through the famine. But friends, I hope you see how profoundly this passage foreshadows the love that God has shown us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. His love for us in Christ is profoundly foreshadowed through both Judah and Joseph. In Judah, we see foreshadowed the sacrificial love of Christ. Though he hadn't committed the crime of taking the silver cup, Judah offers to take the place of the one who was found with the silver cup. Judah willingly offered himself to become Joseph's slave so that Benjamin could go free. Throughout Genesis, we've been tracing the line of individuals through whom the promised Messiah would come. Why you think back through our study, we saw that he would come from Abraham. And then we learned that the promised Messiah would come from Abraham's son, Isaac. And then from Isaac's son, Jacob. And then from Jacob, we would assume that the Messiah would come from Joseph. He is his father's favorite son. A man, as we've seen, with impeccable character and wisdom, whom God raised up to save many. Of course, the promised Messiah is going to come from Joseph. But what we find in Genesis 49, as Jacob is giving his final blessings to his son, is that the promised Messiah isn't going to come from Joseph, but from Judah. And I think it's this moment, this passage Right here where Judah steps up and offers himself in the place of Benjamin that God's divine promise turns down Judah and his lineage. As he blesses Judah, Jacob will later say, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In short, what Jacob is saying is a king is going to come from Judah who will rule in such a way that he wins the obedience of the peoples, the people of the nations. That king, friends, is none other than Jesus Christ. And in Judah, we see foreshadowed the astonishing reality that the promised Messiah, the king of all creation, Jesus Christ, would win obedience from his people by... 
sacrificially dying in their place. Recall the sign that hung above Jesus' head as he was dying on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yet unlike Judah, Jesus was not only willing to bear the punishment for others, but he carried that willingness through to the point of his death on the cross. Judah offered himself as a slave. But Jesus went much further than that, bearing the blame that we deserve by dying in our place, bearing the punishment for our sins. But it's not only Judah who foreshadows for us the love of Christ, but Joseph as well. Joseph foreshadows the forgiving love of God in Christ. Joseph, whose very own brothers hated him, plotted to murder him, and sold him into slavery, who suffered terribly over the course of decades as a result of their hatred for him, yet when he encountered his brothers and was convinced of their repentance, he freely revealed himself to them, weeping over them and completely forgiving the very men who had done evil to him. In all of these ways, he foreshadows for us the glory of Christ's forgiveness in the gospel. It was Jesus who left heaven and came to his own brothers, and yet his own brothers did not receive him. The Jewish authorities persistently plotted to murder him, their plans culminating in their unjustly arresting, trying, and condemning him to death on a cross, yet as God sovereignly worked through the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to bring salvation to the world during the famine, so much more did God sovereignly work through the evil deeds of the Jewish and Roman authorities who put Jesus to death. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection, God was raising up the only sovereign Savior who can save us from our sins. Think about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 when he said, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God was sovereign. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You are guilty for these evil deeds. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God sovereignly raised up the one who would preserve a remnant on earth. And after rising from the dead, Jesus offered complete forgiveness to the very people who put him to death, to the disciples who had abandoned him, And he offers that forgiveness to you and me today if we would repent, if we would do what Judah did and acknowledge our guilt before God, recognize the judgment we deserve and wholeheartedly cast ourselves on him for mercy. Friends, that that is the call for us today. That is what God is teaching us in Genesis 44 and 45, that if we want to know and experience the riches of his mercy and his abundant forgiveness, we must repent. Now listen, if if you're not a follower of Jesus, I recognize that word repent might sound harsh or condemning. 
but it is a common word in the Bible that simply means to turn around. Go the other direction. Change your mind. And in the context of our relationship with God, it means to turn from living your own way. Turn from being your own God. Turn from trying to cleanse yourself of guilt and shame and sin and turn in faith to Jesus, who is the only one who can deal adequately with those things. There's a lot of analysis going on today about the ever-deepening divisions in our country. People on one side of an issue lob grenades at people on the other side of the issue. Both sides believe that what's most wrong with the world is the people on the other side. The fractured relationships we're experiencing aren't ultimately what's wrong with the world. They're merely a symptom of the ultimate problem, which is our fractured relationship with God. Each of us, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to reject God. We've sinned against him in all sorts of ways. Anger, hatred, drunkenness, sexual immorality, lying, disobedience to our parents. And because of that, we're under God's judgment. And if you're not a sociopath, your sins have likely caused you a great deal of guilt or angst and personal shame, whether you admit it openly or not. And if you're carrying around guilt from sins that you've committed, I hope you see in this passage that the way to deal with that guilt is not by trying to cleanse yourself or do good works. Good works are good, don't get me wrong, they're just not enough to deal with our greatest problem. They're not enough to deal with our guilt. It's by repenting and turning to Jesus in faith. If you do that, God will cleanse you of your guilt, cleanse you of your shame, cleanse you of your sins. I mean, Judah and his brothers are a perfect example of this. I want you to look again at chapter 44, verse 16. Judah says in the second half of that verse, God has found out the guilt of your servants, referring to their guilt in selling Joseph into slavery. And this is the second time that Joseph's brothers have consciously spoken about the guilt they have before God because of what they did to Joseph. Friends, it's been 22 years, and these men still feel the guilt of their actions as freshly as if they've just committed them. Time won't wipe away your guilt. Just as they, I'm sure, experienced pangs of guilt for what they'd done throughout the course of these 22 years, I trust you may feel the same about things you did years ago. No amount of time will wipe that guilt away. No amount of good deeds will wipe 
that guilt away. Like Lady Macbeth, we carry around the guilt and stain of our sins. And no matter how much we rub or scrub our hands can wash our sins away. Only Jesus can wash it away. And he will if you would turn to him in faith. Kids, we we talk a lot about repentance. One question you might have as you think about repentance is, how can I know if I've repented? I mean, I I say that I've repented. I think I've repented. How, How can I know if I've repented? The first thing I wanna say to you that I hope you hear from me more than what I'm about to say is, if you've confessed with your mouth, and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You will be saved. You can know for certain that you'll be saved based on God's promise to not turn away any who come to him in faith. But if what you're asking in that question is, how can I look at my own life and and, and perhaps see repentance and faith working themselves out? Judah is a great example for us. When we encountered him in earlier chapters, he was a ruthless and heartless man, right? He did really bad things and didn't think twice about doing them, but now he's different. He genuinely recognizes that what he did was wrong. Even more than that, that what he did made him guilty before God. You also see a change in his actions. The man who once sold his brother into slavery is now willing to become a slave to rescue one brother from slavery. When we genuinely repent, kids, God works a change in our lives. It doesn't mean we no longer sin, right? If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. It just means that when we sin as Christians, we recognize it as sin. We recognize that it's ultimately against God. And it also means that we should start to see the budding of new desires of change in our lives more of a desire for God and his word. There might be a change in relationships, right? If you have a harder relationship with one of your siblings or a classmate, perhaps, you might start to notice a change in your attitude toward them and things like that. And kids, I wanna encourage you all to talk about what it looks like to repent today. Not only that, I wanna encourage you to repent today and turn to Jesus in faith because Jesus is awesome. And he freely forgives all who turn to him. There's a lesson here for all of us who follow Jesus. Repentance produces freedom from sins, dominion, and power in our lives, right? You see this in Judah as well. It was Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph that led Judah and the other brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. They were controlled by envy jealousy, and hatred. But now, even though it is painfully obvious to Judah and all his brothers that Benjamin is their father's favorite son, he's no longer controlled by envy, jealousy, and hatred. He willingly offers to take Benjamin's place as a slave. He's no longer controlled by the power of sin in his life. Repentance 
frees us from being slaves to the same sins we once were, right? What does Paul say in Romans 8? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. God has given us the power, even in the face of sins we were once controlled by, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And if you struggle to do that this past week, the call is for you to continue in daily repentance, daily acknowledging where you've fallen short and confessing it to God. And if we do that, God will freely and fully forgive us for all our sins. Friends, this is the testimony of the entire Bible. Our God, the holy and awesome creator of the universe, the one who is so glorious that heaven and earth flee from his presence, the one before whom mountains melt like wax, is a forgiving God. He joyfully forgives any and all who turn to him in faith. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And Joseph's response to his brothers is a wonderful illustration of how Christ forgives those who repent. And we need to see Christ's forgiveness illustrated through Joseph because of how often Christians, after having once been persuaded when we were not Christians, that God is actually kind and merciful and forgiving and we repented of our sins because we were drawn to his mercy and forgiveness in faith. Now that we're his children, we often mistakenly think that he's exasperated by our sins, frustrated by our sins, tired of dispensing grace to us over and over again. But what we find in our, in our passage is a small glimpse of the forbearance, patience, steadfast love, and forgiveness of Christ towards his people. When we sin, right, like Joseph's brothers, we may feel terrified and dismayed and afraid to approach God, but Jesus says to us, draw near to me. Draw near to me. Come to my throne of grace. I have fully paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Do not fear, but draw near. Receive my mercy. Receive my grace. Yet we should expect, yes, we should expect sin to cause pangs of guilt and shame as believers because we understand the nature of sin. But Jesus does not call us to continually relive our sins, heaping condemnation on ourselves when God himself has removed our condemnation. Instead, when we sin, we should rise up, <coughs> confess it to God, <coughs> excuse me, and experience the loving embrace of our Savior. We see this even in Joseph's words to his brothers. Look at chapter 45, verses 4 and 5. These are probably the sweetest verses in the book of Genesis. 
So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You did this. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do not be distressed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The question is, will we as believers dare to believe in the abounding riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us in Christ? But this passage also doesn't simply call us to receive the glorious forgiveness of Christ It also calls us to forgive others as we have been forgiven in Christ. Friends, we cannot miss how Joseph is also an example to us of the type of forgiveness that we should extend to others. Joseph shows us that there is no sin that we could have committed against us that is beyond our power to forgive as Christians. And I say that knowing how terribly some of you may have been sinned against in your own lives, possibly even by your own family. Consider again Joseph. His very own brothers hated him to the point of plotting his murder, threw him into a pit to leave him for dead before finally deciding to sell him as a slave in Egypt, which would have been as close as you can get to killing a person without actually killing them. He suffered terribly because of their sins against him, but because he knew God as his savior, because he had himself experienced God's redemption and knew that God was at work through the sins committed against him to bring about his ultimate plan of redemption, he was able to forgive those who had sinned so terribly against him. In the same way, friends, we who have been forgiven so great a debt are obligated by the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive those who have sinned against us. It's the knowledge of how much God has forgiven us that drives our forgiveness. God freely pardoned all of our sins even though they brought about the death of his own son. So how much more should we forgive those? who have sinned against us, even as terrible as those sins may have been. Who do you need to forgive in your life today? Is there anyone that you're actively harboring anger towards? Are you allowing bitterness to poison your soul? One person said, can't remember who, that bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's just going to kill you. Are you withholding forgiveness even though Jesus hasn't withheld forgiveness from you? How can you, like Joseph, forgive those who've sought forgiveness and actively imitate God who seeks to be reconciled to those who repent? This is what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We repent to receive God's glorious forgiveness in Christ. And having received that forgiveness, we now freely extend it to others as we look forward to that kingdom 
where we will experience the fullness of our reconciliation with God and Christ, where Jesus will declare to all his people, draw near to me, do not be dismayed. And our reconciliation with God will overflow into fully reconciled relationships with one another forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the depth of the riches of your love for us in Christ. Help us to grasp today what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love for us in Christ. Help us to live lives of repentance, whether it's the first time we are repenting of our sins or that daily repentance that you call your people to. And help us to rejoice in the forgiveness you've extended to us in Christ and help us to freely extend that forgiveness to others. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.